The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A young woman jumped atop a utility box on the street in Tehran and began waving her hijab like a flag. She was arrested. There were several others who followed in her wake, and it became something of a meme on social media that these women who were seeking to assert themselves on this issue of compulsory hijab clearly resonated. And I think it was, you know, it's it's not about clothing, it's about official repression and the extent to which that kind of repression from the Islamic Republic tends to fall disproportionately on Iranian women. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 7th, 2022. It's been a tumultuous few weeks in Iran with the death of a young woman at the hands of the morality police leading to street protests all over the country, calls for the death of the Supreme Leader, and widespread opposition to compulsory wearing of the hijab. To chew it all over and figure out where this is all going, I asked Suzanne Maloney, my Brookings colleague, the Vice President for Governance Studies and a longtime Iran policy scholar, to join me in the virtual jungle studio. We talked about whether these protests are the latest round of something we've seen before or whether there's something different. We talked about the regime's reaction and whether it's connected to unrest elsewhere in the world. We talked about how the United States can constructively respond, and we talked about where it is all going from here. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 7th, Suzanne Maloney on the protests in Iran. Suzanne, I don't really know where to start here because so much has happened in Iran and it seems to have erupted so suddenly. So I am going to start with a hopelessly vague question, which is how big a deal do you think this is? I actually think this is a very big deal. And, you know, the challenge right now is that there's a lot of irrational exuberance out there, but there's also a lot of, I think, very unproductive cynicism about the possibility for change and how important it is that we're seeing small scale, but frequent and quite vociferous and even violent 
eruptions all around the country and they're articulating slogans and engaging in political voice in a way that directly contravenes one of the fundamental principles of the Islamic Republic and the entire post-revolutionary system. So, you know, the moment here is is one for all those of us outside of Iran to to watch and wait and look for opportunities where we can actually provide some constructive support. The future of Iran is has always been in the hands of the Iranian people. And what's so interesting about this moment, I think, is that they are seizing that opportunity and they are certainly advancing in ways large, but often very small and individualistic, um, a, a vision of something very different than the political system they currently have. Okay. So you just said three things that I want to pull out individually. One is you refer to a kind of irrational exuberance in response to this. The second is a sense of unwarranted cynicism. And the third is that this is a moment where we should watch and look for ways to be constructively supportive. And I want to talk about each of those in turn. So what is the irrational exuberance that you see in response to these protests? Well, I think a lot of that is in the conversation online, the fact that you have celebrities um, sort of tweeting on behalf of Mahsa Amini and the people of Iran, and especially the women of Iran. That's wonderful. It has also created at least... um, in some communities, a sense that the change is is going to happen uh, any day now and that the regime could fall tomorrow. Um, I think that that's probably very, very unlikely. We know from the past 43 years and from previous incidents of significant unrest within Iran, as well as from what we're able to see on the streets right now, that the Islamic system in Iran has um, a monopoly on the levers of power and very little compunction about using absolute force to sustain its rule. We've you know, seen you know, small videos over the course of the past few weeks, but we know from the 2009 protests over what was perceived, widely perceived as a, a rigged re-election for then-President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, as well as from protests that happened primarily for, for economic reasons in 2017, 2018, and again in 2019, that the regime can and will put down even very significant social movements. And so, it, you know, they have the means and the will to crush even widespread protests and to cow people from going back out to the streets. They can shut down the internet for days or weeks or to do it in an unpredictable way, as I think we're seeing right now, to make it more difficult for people to communicate with one another and to get information from the outside world about what's happening around the country. Um, And all of that in the past, um, combined with other efforts to pick off individual leaders and activists and either detain them or encourage them to leave the country, uh, has been very successful in avoiding any significant challenge to the stability, the long-term stability of the Islamic system. And there's no reason to believe that they, the Iranian leadership and the security forces won't do whatever they have to do to stay in power. And you know, right now, I think we see violence, but it can get a, a whole lot worse. And the crackdown is likely to only intensify if, in fact, the uprising continues. All right. So what about unwarranted cynicism? 
what is the 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 quality of that well, I think there's also a sense that, well, we, especially from uh, those who've had long experience in either covering or watching Iran as experts, analysts, government officials, um, there's a sense that, you know, this is, this is a leaderless movement. There doesn't appear to be a strategy or an agenda. There probably isn't even very much coordination among the various groups that have gone to the streets now in at least 80 cities around the country over the course of nearly three weeks at this point. And we know how quickly, as I just explained, and how uh, forcefully the uh, Iranian leadership can repress those who criticize it and how successful they've been over 43 years. What I like to say is that the Iranians have survived, you know, the Islamic Republic has survived essentially every challenge that is imaginable in the past four decades, Uh, civil war, internal unrest, now even a, a long and, and fairly serious bout of managing a pandemic. Um, and yet the, the regime has always sort of managed to survive. And so, you know, the, the, the question that we have is how resilient is the regime today? Um, how do we avoid falling into the temptation uh, of, of assuming that simply because a protest didn't succeed in 2009 or in 2019, that it can't succeed this time around. Um, and one of the, I think, important precedents to, to keep in mind is the, the 1979 revolution itself um, that was not widely anticipated in the halls of government or among the commentariat uh, outside of Iran. It certainly wasn't even anticipated even in some parts of the Iranian system at that time. Uh, and one of my favorite books on the Iranian revolution called The Unthinkable Revolution by a sociologist by the name of Charles Kurtzman uh, makes the point that, you know, so long as the revolution remained unthinkable, it remained undoable. Once Iranians saw people coming to the streets day after day, protesting, organizing, coordinating uh, against the system, it didn't matter that there wasn't, you know, sort of a, a very well-organized um, opposition, that it was very inchoate. There were different groups that had different agendas. What mattered was people were willing to come to the streets because they believed that there was a possibility of change succeeding. And I think what we're seeing today in Iran is the very beginnings of that conviction. People willing to come to the streets. They're seeing, in fact, that they while there is uh, a backlash that, in fact, they're being joined by more and more people around the country and around uh, their own communities. And I think that's creating a, a moment of, of tremendous courage and, and um, excitement in Iran. So one of the striking things about this movement is that unlike the protests uh, following the uh, rigged election, uh, the second election of Ahmadinejad, this was uh, is driven by the death of a single person. And I'm interested this is hardly the first person to die as a result of beatings by the religious police or the the morality police. Why do you think this particular incident produced this kind of reaction? Is it, it reminds me a little bit of the, the street vendor who set himself on fire in Tunisia, touching off the Arab spring. You wonder why this is it just a straw that broke a camel's back? It, it, was there something about the incident itself? I think it's impossible to say. I've asked this question to 
colleagues who know Iran far better than I ever could, two Iranian journalists who joined us at Brookings for a conversation last week and who helped to, to break the story of Mahsa Amini to the wider world uh, through the platform of IranWire.com. And they had their own uh, sense, I think, of personal identification with Masa and the plight that she suffered, you know, a sort of young woman coming to visit the big city of Tehran as a tourist um, and finding herself nabbed by the morality police, as frankly, thousands or even in some cases, millions of women in Iran experience every year. Her death has tapped into a, a residual fury about the restrictions on women in particular, but more widely on the entire population as a result of these ideological mandates that are enforced by the security forces with, um, uh, you know, and the judiciary with uh, a severe retribution. And so, you know, we've seen this actually happening over the course of a number of years. Um, women, you know, are very active in Iranian life. They, in fact, constitute the majority of all university and post-university students. They, they have, uh, you know, had a, a number of restrictions on their activities as a result of the legal structure of the Islamic Republic. But they have often fought back and, and you know, sought to expand their rights and freedoms uh, within Iran. And so for a long time, there was always this sort of presumption among, especially outside experts, that you know, hijab was just, it was an annoyance. It was a fr point of frustration, but it wasn't really a big priority for Iranian women. But what we've seen over the course of the past couple of years, especially since the, the protests that began in late 2017, is that Iranians themselves were, were pointing to the hijab, the, the not, not headscarf, not the Islamic moral code itself, but to the requirement, the legal requirement of compulsory hijab, that that was something that clearly resonated with many uh, young Iranian women and with, with many, many of different generations and with men as well. And so we saw in December 2017, in the midst of what were primarily economic protests, a young woman jumped atop a utility box on a street in Tehran and began waving her hijab like a flag. She was arrested. There were several others who followed in her wake, and it became something of a meme on social media that these women who were seeking to assert themselves on this issue of compulsory hijab clearly resonated. And I think it was, you know, it's not about religion. It's not about clothing. It's about official repression and the extent to which that kind of repression from the Islamic Republic tends to fall disproportionately on Iranian women. Um, and what we've seen, I think, over the course of these latest protests is that it, it just resonates incredibly widely across society. You see young girls filming themselves uh, pushing their, their headmaster out of their school. You see people in the streets burning their hijabs. These are not people who are doing it because of any sense of, of, of irreligion. It's really because of the, the mandate and the fixation of the Islamic Republic, not just to ensure uh, that, that women are, are, are dressed in, in a, with standards that they deem appropriate, 
but also because there are so many other areas of, of self-expression that for women are made more difficult. So you've probably seen the debate about women attending soccer matches, which has been hard fought, and there's been very limited opportunities for women to do that in 43 years. There are so many other things that, that women and young people are arrested for that are just normal parts of their daily life that they tend to engage in often uh, in private, whether it's dancing or going to parties or being in a car with someone who's not uh, related to them, a man who's not related to them. All of these things put their lives in danger. And I think especially this younger generation in Iran is just truly fed up with that kind of official repression. And to what extent do you think this set of protests is fundamentally about the compulsory hijab? And to what extent do you think it's actually about the Islamic Republic itself? There are uh, been a number of, you know, sort of death to uh, the supreme leader, you know, death to the Rep Islamic Republic chants that seem to go significantly beyond the personal liberty issues. Is the hijab the problem in and of itself, or is it a emblem of a larger architecture that these protests are aimed at toppling? Well, I think it's both. Um, the hijab is certainly a problem in and of itself for many Iranian women. The, the compulsory hijab is a problem. But the larger problem, I think, is the sense of frustration and, and alienation that Iranians feel from a government. You know, most of the population was born since the revolution. They have very little ability to change the structure or personnel or legal framework of their government as a result of the structure of power, which really just keeps all the levers of control in the hands of those who are not subject to any kind of popular vote. And I think it's a recognition that the hijab is one of the, the core principles of the Islamic system, this idea that this is a, a theocratic state that imposes guidelines that derive not from popular opinion or public choice, but from the mandate of uh, an interpretation of Islamic law that is not clearly shared by many on the streets within Iran. But I think, you know, as you point out, you know, from the very beginning of, of what we've seen over the course of the past uh, 18 days, Iranians haven't simply um, gone to the streets to complain about hijab. They have actually been at the outset uh, denouncing the regime as a whole. And so they've, the, the various slogans have involved death to Khamenei, death to the dictator, uh, the, the word Azadi, freedom, is one that comes up in almost every slogan that I've seen. And what's been so amazing to, to see on social media is just the outpouring of, of grievances that Iranians have. Iranians, of course, within the country, as well as those in the diaspora. There, there were people who were initially tweeting about, you know, the, they were protesting for Masa, Baraya Masa. But then that quickly morphed into thousands of Iranians um, discussing the other reasons that, that, that they wanted to see change. And 
In fact, there was a, a young man in Iran who, who put some of the tweets into a song, um, which became something of a, of a viral hit within Iran and among Persian speakers. He was quickly arrested, um, but it's an amazing song. And I think it really does highlight the different injustices, the sense of frustrations that are uh, about social issues, about economic issues, but fundamentally about political power. Uh, and the sense of, uh, of oppression from a government that uh, is completely unaccountable to its people. So these protests have taken place alongside uh, protests throughout the Russian Federation, to which they bear a odd resemblance in that they are, uh, in both cases, led by women, and in some cases, uh, largely composed of women. In the Russian case, particularly in Dagestan, there are a bunch of these women protesters who are also uh, wearing hijab. And, and so there's a superficial similarity uh, between at least the presentation of the thing, and yet the protests deal with, all, with altogether different matters. Do you think they are related in any substantial way? I've noticed that a, a lot of Ukrainians have been amplifying Iranian tweets in this context. And I'm just curious whether you think there are relationships to speak of between these concurrent social movements. My sense is what's happening within Iran is entirely driven by Iranians inside the country and that their frame of reference is entirely domestic. But that said, there's a powerful mirror effect, as we know from the Arab Spring, that when um, one group of citizens sees another group coming to the streets um, and and looking to engage in in protests, that it can inspire others to do so. The the 2009 movement, uh, green movement in Iran, has been lauded as helping to contribute to the Arab Spring and some of the other social movements that followed it. So um, it's, not, it's not entirely inconceivable that there are lessons that are being drawn, that there is a sense of solidarity being established. And I think more broadly, you know, the, the plight of Iranians um, resonates strongly um, with so many others uh, that suffer under repressive systems, including Russians, including Chinese. I think that, you know, we, we have a real challenge in the sense that we have these um, very large, highly personalistic authoritarian states that are engaged in repressive uh, behavior at home and that are also engaged in uh, destabilizing activities around their borders. Um, and it, you know, the, the challenge is how actors from the outside can constructively influence that and, and provide opportunities from, for those from the inside to begin to affect changes on their own governments and their own policies. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So before we get to the constructive engagement from the outside, I want to ask you about the regime's response, which seems from where I sit anyway to be quite flat-footed and caught off guard, which given both the economic protests and the post-Ahmadinejad election protests, a little surprising to me. Uh, How would you characterize the regime's response so far? And does it seem, I I don't know, like rocked back on its heels or anemic to you as well? I think it's been puzzling that, you know, we are so far into this protest movement in Iran, um, almost three weeks, and there hasn't been a more strenuous crackdown from the authorities. There is, of course, on the streets, you know, plenty of violence um, from security forces against protesters, but they haven't moved as quickly or as forcefully as they did in prior incidents, particularly um, around the 2019 protests, which uh, took place after authorities raised gasoline prices uh, significantly overnight. And there are two theories for why this might be. One theory is that they don't believe they feel they're significantly threatened, that these are small, largely small scale, you know, a few hundred, maybe a few thousand in a few cases. They're happening in disparate places. There doesn't appear to be uh, a considerable degree of coordination among the, the individual protests and that an overreaction might be more dangerous than an underreaction. And, you know, remember, this is a regime that has survived an awful lot of unrest, not just the the big incidents that we've talked about, but Iranians come to the streets almost on on a weekly basis somewhere in the country to protest something. And occasionally it's become violent. Occasionally it's required a significant um, pushback from the system, but usually it, it tends to just fizzle out. And so it may be that the the system thought that this too would just fizzle out and that they could ride it out and avoid uh, putting fuel on the fire, so to speak. I think there's also another interpretation which suggests that you know they 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 underestimated how significant this would become. They didn't anticipate that the protesters, while they don't appear to be coordinated, do appear to be have learned some lessons from some of the prior incidents of uh, of unrest in Iran. And so what we're seeing is that, you know, there has been, uh, you know, just a more confrontational approach by protesters. They're not fleeing when they're hit. They're, in fact, uh, fighting back. That we've seen some efforts to go beyond just simple demonstrations. There have been cyber attacks on the website of the Supreme Leader's Office, on uh, other other forms of official regime information, and even uh, apparently on the central bank and some of the other banks within Iran. There have been calls for a general strike. Uh, there are a number of students and schools that have been shuttered as a result as a way of protest. And there is at least some social media evidence that this may be spreading to industry as well. And all of that you know, is quite dangerous. Um, and there, I think, you know, if in fact we see the strikes and the cyber attacks and some of the other efforts to undermine the authority of the Islamic Republic, um, 
I think you know we will see probably a higher degree of repression and and more scrambling to try to get the upper hand. All right. So you started out by saying that the fate of the Iranian people was going to be decided by the Iranian people, not by external actors, which I took to mean the U.S. government, among others. Uh, yet you describe constructive potential action in support of this movement that we should be interested in taking. And I'm interested how you square that circle and what a constructive U.S. policy would look like. Well, I think first and foremost, it's been important to hear from senior leadership in the U.S. government, and I think more frequently now from outside the U.S. as well, words of support for the protesters themselves. That's That's been an issue that's been hotly debated in the case of prior unrest in Iran and the sense that we might taint the protesters if we appeared to endorse their complaints against the government. I think, you know, that long since became uh, an irrelevant concern because uh, no matter what we say from outside Iran, uh, the the leadership will not take lightly um, any form of social protest. So uh, I think it's important that President Biden has spoken on this, Secretary Blinken, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, have all come out and forcefully um, sympathized with the people of Iran, backed their right to come to the streets and their demands for individual liberties and greater political rights. And, and that that kind of, um, you know, sort of formal endorsement is, is something we're not shying away from this time. So I think that first and foremost, it, it isn't physical help, but it is important that Iranians, when they are taking risks, that they are recognized and, and that they are supported from the rest of the world. There are some things that the international community can do to provide greater uh, opportunity for Iranians to get around some of the control that their own regime has over the internet. And I think we've seen a little bit of movement there, that there's been efforts um, from the State Department, the Treasury Department to provide sanctions waivers so that Iranians can get technology and, um, and, and access to, to workarounds that enable them to sustain connectivity, even when the regime tries to shut down the internet. And I think, you know, the other, the other important step that can be taken both in the United States, but especially also uh, elsewhere as well, is to make clear that those who are in any way connected to the backlash, um, either because they hold official positions of power or because they're physically uh, in involved in directing some of the backlash, both through control of the communication system within Iran, as well as control of security forces, they and their wider families, um, you know, sh really shouldn't be uh, traveling and engaging with counterparts in in the United States, in Europe, and elsewhere. I mean, this is we saw very quickly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine how powerful it is to go after the oligarchs. I think we've done very little to go after the oligarchs of the Iranian system. And to do so, we really need the help of the, the wider international community because, of course, there's been you know, relatively limited opportunity um, for power brokers in Iran to either bank or, or live in the United States. But you, know, you look at Canada, you look at Europe, and the, the, the next generation of, of the regime leadership um, has set up shop in, outside of Iran 
and if we find ways to um, go after some of the, the structure of power in Iran and with the same degree of creativity and forcefulness that we have with respect to Russia, then I think um, it will deliver a message that it's not business as usual anymore. There's There, there are lots of issues uh, in the diplomatic and security space where we have the need to deal with Iran officially and directly. But in fact, this isn't a government that should feel comfortable as long as there are people coming to the streets in the way that they are. So let's talk about the other great issue in U.S.-Iranian relations right now, uh, while this is taking place, which is the negotiation over the uh, recommitment to the JCPOA or the refinement of it. The Biden administration has supposedly put a deal on the table. It's obviously controversial in the way that uh, the previous deal was, as well as some ways of its own. Uh, and as I understand it anyway, they are kind of waiting for a response from Iran on this. Do you have the sense that this set of protests affects that negotiation, either from the Iranian side or from the American side? It does and it doesn't. Um, you know, we know from 2009 that even as the Iranian regime was crushing the green movement in the streets, uh, there were efforts by the Obama administration to restart uh, negotiations with Iran over its nuclear activities that were largely untouched by the concern and, frankly, widespread sympathy for those who were protesting on the streets. And so, you know, I think that kind of decompartmentalization is, um, you know, indicative of the priorities of the U.S. government with respect to Iran, which is that, you know, a, a nuclear deal has been a high priority for the administration simply because there is a need to avoid uh, a crisis over Iran at a time where we're handling a hot war with a nuclear power in Europe. And while we're um, trying to mobilize to meet the quote unquote pacing threat or pacing challenge of China as defined by uh, the, the Biden administration. So, you know, I, I have no doubt that the, the efforts to try to push through a deal with Iran over the nuclear issue that might bring back at least some level of compliance with the 2015 nuclear deal will remain quite active. That's the mission that U.S. Uh, envoy for Iran, Rob Malley, has been given, and he's talented and, and diligent diplomat, and he's going to continue to pursue it. The challenge is that the Iranians you know, have never demonstrated that they, they are prepared to say yes to any agreement with this administration for reasons that are, um, to some extent, understandable, whatever levels of trust might have existed prior to the decision by President Trump to withdraw from the deal have been imploded. Um, there's an expectation that, you know, even if a deal is reconstituted, the United States might once again walk away from it and continue the damage to the Iranian economy. And so given that Iran has found a way, primarily using China, to survive economically under what we still would define as maximum pressure, there I think is is some degree of ambivalence about the political costs of coming back into a deal from the Iranian side, and they're just simply trying to maximize the concessions that they've got that they might be able to get. So there's been a you know a, a, an agreement that's largely been intact, negotiated in draft form since at least February. 
Uh, first came the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which disrupted any expectations for that to, to finally reach its culmination. And then, of course, uh, even in the past few weeks, there was there was some hope that there might be a deal in the offing. But it was the Iranians, I think, who backed away with the assumption that they might find themselves with greater leverage, presuming that the economy continues to limp along, that Europeans in particular will find themselves in a very cold and difficult position this winter without Russian gas, and that Iran might actually have greater leverage late in the year or early next year. Uh, I think obviously that was a, it was not a good assumption given events on the ground within Iran. And the challenge now is that the regime, I think, is, is highly unlikely to sign on to any dramatic new opening with the United States, which is what a new nuclear deal would represent at a time when they are, are clearly uh, under fire at home, simply because it would telegraph weakness to their own population and to the wider region, the international community. So my expectation is, despite whatever anyone might wish on either side, this deal will remain stalled as long as the unrest within Iran remains uh, at the pace and, and scope that we see at this point. And fundamentally, uh, you know, our attentions ought to be focused elsewhere. It's an interesting point that you make that signing a deal now would telegraph weakness to domestic protesters. And that, I, I think, reflects at some level and understanding that a large group of people who are protesting compulsory hijab, that there's some linkage between that and being soft on the United States and not enthusiastic about the projection of Iranian, you know, sort of Shia uh, force in through Hezbollah, right, and through uh, the involvement in, in Yemen. Am I right in making that interpretation on the, on the part of the regime that there is some sort of inherent, if not Westernism, then at least opposition to the, the, the framework through which the Islamic Republic looks at the world on the part of that the the regime sees in protesters people who are who are trying to dismantle much more than you know domestic coercion but the the posture of Iranian international position as well I think that's exactly right. I mean, what Iran fears about a nuclear deal is not the internecine debates within the system itself. You know, there historically people have posited that the Revolutionary Guard are opposed to a deal and that some elements of the reformists or moderates within the system are in favor of a deal. That's that's sort of irrelevant Kremlinology. What gives the Supreme Leader, who is the ultimate decision maker around this, tremendous pause about any deal, any engagement whatsoever with the West is this conviction that he has held for at least the 43 years that he has been in official positions in the Islamic Republic, and presumably for much longer than that, that the West is inherently uh, nefarious, that the desires of, uh, of the United States and other world powers in engaging with Iran, whether through diplomacy, through economics, through cultural relationships, um, are purely to try to subjugate Iran and to destroy the government and the country. And so what the danger that he, 
Ali Khamenei, Iran's supreme leader, sees in, in any nuclear agreement is, is that he has given an overture to the West that, they, that the West will use to completely subvert and undermine Iran's independence and its culture. And so, you know, this is inherently linked to his, his dogmatic insistence on the precepts of uh, what he interprets as Islamic legal requirements for women to wear, to cover their hair and to wear modest dress. And so if you begin to give ground to the West on economic and cultural relations and diplomacy, you begin to give ground uh, to those who say they don't want to wear compulsory hijab, then you have effectively hollowed out the, the very nature of the Islamic system. And, and this is the kind of collapse that Ali Khamenei has spent his 33 years in power as supreme leader trying to ward against. Is that simply paranoia on his part? Or when you look at the social media presence of the protesters, you know, sometimes a hijab is just a hijab, right? And I could see a lot of protesters having much a much more domestic focus and not really thinking about, you know, nuclear development or the struggle for, you know, along the Lebanese-Israeli border. Is it fair to say that at least some large group of the protesters, in fact, also link the domestic uh, repression with a set of international behaviors, or is Khamenei just paranoid in that regard? I think they're inherently interlinked. We don't hear the kind of slogans that we heard in prior rounds of protests that specifically referenced Syria and Lebanon um, that, that were deeply nationalistic. And so, you know, at this point, I think it is very much internally focused. But, you know, every time you talk to Iranians, uh, every every evidence that we have of, of what drives dissatisfaction, both, uh, you know, in terms of scholarly evidence, the, the kind of journalistic reporting, um, and other means of trying to understand Iranian perceptions and, and public opinion at a time when most of us who work on the issue aren't safe to go there any longer. The sense is that Iranians just want normalcy. They want normal interactions with the world. They want to be part of the international community, um, politically, economically, culturally. They want access to the world around them. They, you know, have uh, widespread internet access or widespread opportunity to use the internet. And yet there is this kind of sense that Iran is so much is restricted for them because of this government. Finally, talk a little bit about scenarios for the future. I mean, one one possibility that you allude to is that the government just decides, okay, we've given this a chance to peter out. It hasn't. Uh, let's amp up the repression that would be consistent with the way they've done it in the past. Another possibility is that it, in fact, does peter out. And a third possibility is that it continues to escalate and that efforts at repression fail. What are the markers that you're looking for to figure out if this is, we started this with you saying this is a very big deal, but you know, not every very big deal is a revolution. What, what, what are the markers that you're looking for as to whether this is merely a big deal to people who follow Iran or, or a, a big deal for the future of the country? 
Well, I think the most important marker is the frequency of protests and to what extent they, you know, we can demonstrate or, or ascertain that they're in fact um, multi-class and that they're not limited to small segments of the upper middle class, um, which has been the case earlier in Iran's history. I think another important marker would be the extent to which this moves beyond protests on the street and really begins to hit the economy. Iran has had a very tough go under American sanctions, especially since Trump withdrew from the nuclear deal. But in fact, last year, the Iranian economy grew slightly, still really, really big economic problems. And if we saw a shutdown of factories, of industries, especially in the petroleum sector, um, that would be uh, very important. It would suggest that this is morphing from just individual uh, civil disobedience and protest into something that was a more coordinated effort to challenge the system. Um, and I think the other important marker would be defections, both from the political elite, and you see a small amount of that, at least uh, in commentary on social media, but more importantly, from the security forces, if we get to a moment when um, the security forces seem to be uh, either unwilling uh, at the top or unable in terms of their day-to-day -day activities to um, you know, significantly push back on the, the incidents of repression, then uh, you know, I think we've seen something you know, that, that has the potential to really impact the future of the country. I will say, though, that you know, even if we don't get there, even if this movement doesn't escalate in a historic way, it will remain a significant challenge to the system and to the, the tranquility and security and stability of Iran itself. Because you know, what started this in the beginning was the simple act of an individual removing their hijab in protest. And that, that is very hard to stamp out. Uh, if the regime is forced to contend with either arresting or abusing, and oftentimes both, any woman who comes to the street without a headscarf, or letting those women essentially abstain from or defy the mandates of the law and of the Islamic system that's been put in place since the revolution, that's a really difficult choice, a difficult choice at an individual level for security forces on a day-to-day -day basis, a difficult choice for a regime which has conditioned its hold on power on these ideological claims. Um, and so I think, you know, that civil disobedience and, and the wonderful simplicity of the act of protest by individuals, as well as this broader question of how the regime can maintain power at a time where it's, you know, the very essence of, of uh, its argument and its ideology is under siege uh, on a day-to-day -day basis on the streets. Um, I think, you know, we are seeing something that is, is a, as I've described it in the past, a kind of slow-moving metastasis of the Islamic Republic. Um, it's impossible, I think, for anyone to predict the trajectory of uh, how Iran might evolve. And that's always been the case, but it's even more unpredictable today. We are going to leave it there. Suzanne Maloney, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben. Great to talk. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, and that's never more in evidence than when we have Brookings Institution scholars on as guests. 
Hey folks, you need to do your part to support the Lawfare podcast. Share us on all the socials. Become a material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. And you know, hey, tell people I heard this great conversation on the Lawfare podcast about what's going on in Iran. It's just like better than anything else I've heard on the subject. That's the best kind of publicity. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.